Lauren Rudick of Hiller PC. What an honor and a pleasure it is to have you with us on Hemp Parents today. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Joy. It's a pleasure. Now, I have had the great pleasure of being able to work with you for a number of years now, and your practice is quite expansive. You operate right there in Manhattan, in New York City, with Hiller PC. Now, the firm itself, of course, is quite established, not only in the cannabis space, the famous Washington et al., Marvin Washington football player versus Jeff Sessions, former United States Attorney General et al., but also some landmark uh, preservation cases for historical sites in New York, a massively um, an incredible win against HBO in a defamation lawsuit. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very diverse practice. You are co-founder of Hiller PC's cannabis practice and, of course, are a partner in the firm focusing primarily on corporate work and cannabis, all of its forms, adult use, medical, and, of course, hemp. Fair to say that's your role at Hiller PC as it sits today? Absolutely, yes. Um, heavily focused on cannabis and hemp, very, very small percentage of the practice over to psychedelics, um, but most of the same players, um, but definitely focused on corporate and regulatory work, um, representing mostly startups and now ultimately see, seeing them through multiple stages of growth as the industry matures, so do our clients. So we're super excited to support their visions in these new and exciting industries. And talk about exciting. New York has really taken it. Now, New York was not unlike Kentucky or Colorado, who were first movers. New York really went for it starting in 2015. Now, all through the Department of Agriculture and Markets and, and in conjunction with uh, Cornell and the State University of New York in Morseville um, and New Paltz to some extent. Uh, but it really began to expand and decide that New York, like many states, wants to take the lead. New York very sophisticated, highly educated, so um, pleased with the amount of industry stakeholder work that all of the regulators do, whether it's the New York Department of Ag and Markets, the New York Department of Health, and now, as we know, the New York Department of Health has been liberated of its role with regard to <laughs> all forms of cannabis, including cannabinoid hemp, with the creation of the New York Office of Cannabis Management. But regardless, all three of those regulatory agencies, to me, have just been absolutely impressively engaging with stakeholder interests and really demonstrating a true and authentic desire to get it right. I'm really impressed with a lot of those regulators and officials. Um, one of those regulators, Mr. Norm uh, Berenbaum, is no longer uh, with the state of New York. And I know that um, th that uh, Norm, well-intended, a wonderful guy, um, but also more of a, a prohibitionist, for lack of potentially a more accurate word. And so there have been yet even more changes to the cannabinoid hemp regs uh, since uh, Norm was no longer with the state of New York. So with those cannabinoid hemp regulations, and, and I think that we this show, just telling the listeners here, is going to mostly focus on uh, cannabinoid hemp and not necessarily so much fiber uh, and oil seed, although we'll certainly see if there are if there, that type of, of business is, uh, is asking for help from Hiller PC. Um, but the cannabinoid hemp regulations, New York recognized, listen, 
we need to set up our New York processors, manufacturers, and businesses for success, which means setting them up for compliance with the Code of Federal Regulations for good manufacturing practices for dietary supplements, food, cosmetics, and over-the-counter drugs. And so those cannabinoid hemp regulations absolutely require compliance with that Code of Federal Regulations and then responsibly adds additional um regulations to assure safety and quality and purity of the of the products being made. Can you tell us how have your clients reacted to uh, the cannabinoid hemp regulations going from essentially no regulations at all for for hemp extract to pretty strict regulations? I don't call them strict. They they in fact are regulations that we have to follow anyway and that the good actors had been following uh, quite a bit uh, before these cannabinoid hemp regulations came out. But what are your, uh, what are you hearing from your clients about those? So no question that the cannabinoid hemp regulations specifically as they relate to processing, you know, requiring GMP certification, requiring, uh, you know, the products be tested by ISO accredited labs. It does create a much higher barrier to entry. Um, it does make establishing a processing and manufacturing facility that much more expensive. Um, it does, you know, require consistent upkeep, regulatory compliance, and just a lot more capital and human investment. Um, so that is a con, but the pro is we have a regulated pathway to engage in these activities. So from an operational standpoint, having regulations is a blessing because before it was just all gray market loopholes. I heard this, a criminal defense attorney told me that, the regulations leave open this, there's a possibility we could do that, maybe we can do this, maybe we can transfer across state lines. So much ambiguity. But as soon as the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health working, you know, moved over from the Department of Agriculture to the Department of Health, as soon as they promulgated these um, cannabinoid hemp regulations as it relates to processing, um, and even requiring, taking it that step further and requiring distributors and retailers um, you know, to essentially police the products that they sell and ensure that all of the products that they sell meet the same stringent requirements that New York hemp processors and manufacturers um, are required to maintain. Um, you know, it really does create an exceptional program to ensure quality and and safety in New York, not just imposed upon our own hemp processors, but also imposed on processors or products that are sold here in New York. So not to be scared of regulation. You know, we're, we're a big fan of regulation. It creates legal pathways. It is so much easier to operate pursuant to regulation than to operate in sort of a gray space, you know, with no guidance um, and no checks on the types of activities that we're engaging in. It just, that sort of system creates all kinds of opportunity for litigation and legal exposure and risk, uh, whereas a regulated pathway mitigates all of that. Indeed, it's amazing what New York is doing. I mean, really being the first ones to require that CGMP compliance and make that overt pathway uh, for food and beverage in a way that ensures, as you say, safety and prevents the litigation and all of those things. But additionally, New York was the first one, and this really raised the eyebrows of the FDA, and currently I think is still the only one that has set an actual limit for milligrams, a maximum amount of milligrams of total cannabinoids that can be in the food product. And as you know, a food product, 25 milligrams of total cannabinoids per package. If it's a dietary supplement, 3,000 milligrams total cannabinoids per package with a maximum serving size of 75 milligrams of total cannabinoids. And what I think was so interesting is people were expecting that to be milligrams of CBD, uh, but New York is quite uh, sophisticated in understanding certainly that other minor cannabinoids and, and hemp-derived uh, 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 extracts are, are being used throughout the marketplace. And indeed that 
that they together have a different effect, the entourage effect. And they are also, of course, accounting for potentially intoxicating cannabinoids such as Delta 9, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol and wanting to make sure that all of those together equal these limits of 25 for food, 75 for serving and 3000 per package for dietary supplements. So very interesting stuff there. Do you have any clients that have, that are taking issue with any of those limits? Are you aware of, of companies taking issue with those limits? I mean, they definitely raised eyebrows and a lot of questions as to how they came to those limits and not a lot of answers on how they arrived at those limits. You know, we had challenged, um, you know, some lawmakers. There was a rumor, you know, that they were looking to Europe and some of the guidelines in Europe with respect to total CBD, but that isn't total cannabinoids. Um, you know, but not a lot of transparency as to how they arrived at those numbers and determined that that was the safe number, you know, and, and how to put a number on that. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, I do hear that other states are considering following New York's lead in this regard, um, which is an interesting standard. So I myself would be very interested to learn more about how those numbers were reached. Yes, I, I was quite involved with those numbers. Um, and so and, and can certainly be happy to tell you, certainly with the 75, that had a lot to do with really the GW pharmaceutical trials that stated that they did not start to see liver hepatoxin until certain milligrams. Now, bear in mind, it's all kind of ridiculous because all of this hepatoxicity, I think, and concern about liver damage is a bit of a is a bit of a red herring. And as we know, epidiolex, when we talk about GW pharmaceuticals, we're really talking about a highly concentrated pharmaceutical refined form of, of a molecule of CBD as opposed to a single to, molecule. Yeah. A single molecule, I mean, which was fascinating and hopefully we'll be able to get into it uh, during this interview, the new dietary ingredient notifications that were submitted this summer, which clearly were not for the single molecule CBD, but were for a full spectrum hemp extract. And we've still got the FDA pretending that the single molecule CBD is somehow the same article as a full spectrum hemp extract. They're just not even anywhere near the same. But uh, the point being that that the epidiolex um, and, and these particular uh, research that was cited, um, this these trials were done with 1500 milligrams of isolated CBD on, on some people that were already in vulnerable populations. So for the folks that went into a lot of these, if they went into the trial with existing liver damage, and so the listeners know when I say hepatoxicity, that's a fancy word for liver damage, same thing, was if they already had liver damage or if they were taking certain medications where there's a contraindication, with those incredibly high doses, 1,500 milligrams a day of highly refined uh, cannabidiol, yes, they saw some increased hepatoxicity in those limited vulnerable populations. Um, having said that, uh, that's not typically what a serving size is of full-spectrum hemp extract, and certainly vulnerable populations are one thing, a healthy human beings are, are another. Um, so I, I think that's partly where those came from. And I see also that there are we're in a public comment period right now in the state of New York with additional proposed amendments. Right. And they're looking to increase um, uh, some of those numbers, I believe, from 75 milligrams per serving for dietary supplements up to 100 milligrams per serving for dietary supplements. So that's really encouraging. A lot of the proposed, the, the current proposed amendments that we're seeing right now, and goodness knows I'm preaching to the choir with you on the phone, were basically 
all of the things that folks had been at, except for one little tiny piece, which we can talk about or not, they are all major improvements that the industry had by and large begged for the first time around, but un were unable to achieve um, potentially due to Mr. Berenbaum's uh, presence and, and authority over that process. Probably, probably. Um, you know, but you raise an interesting point about, um, you know, the formulation in general and um, GW Pharmaceuticals and Epidiolex. And, you know, the formulators of, of Epidiolex um, do not believe that that formulation was optimized. You know, the use of an isolate depriving the user of, you know, the, the entourage effect and the other cannabinoids that might naturally occur in that very same hemp, you know, could have potentially mitigated, you know, some of the harmful effects in that very limited, already vulnerable population. Um, you you know, so lots of questions on dosing, lots of questions on efficacy. Um, what we do know is this plant has been used safely for over 3,000 years. Um, and so why they need to, you know, feel that they need to put all of these sort of, you know, safety parameters around it is another another question, you know, for another day. But, um, you know, very interesting to note, CBD is a wonderful molecule, but it works so much better, you know, when, when joined with the other molecules and terpenoids um, that are naturally occurring in the plant, in the hemp plant, in the cannabis plant generally. So much so, so much so. And I want to talk a little bit more about New York and then get into that larger picture of, of our regulatory pathways and sort of the predictions uh, that we're seeing coming down the pipe. Like, I certainly think that, you know, it's going to most likely come down to new dietary ingredient notifications. But let's talk for another minute. And, and by the way, before we move on, do are you getting a lot of oil seed and fiber uh, clients at all or most of your clients within the cannabinoid hemp and hemp extract world? Most of my clients are within the, the cannabinoid hemp and extract world, although starting to see a little bit more interest in industrial uses. Um, it's starting to pick up a little bit, you know, a lot of talk about soil remediation, a lot of talk about, you know, um, hemp for cannabinoids, hemp for terpenes. I mean, I guess that still falls into that same sort of program, um, you know, and food and feed, you know, as the more education we have about hemp just being the most perfect, um, you know, protein with all of the omegas, you know, definitely a lot of talk about food. You know, the, I think the biggest problem with the industrial uses of hemp is that we're so behind. You know, we're just not going to catch up to the infrastructure that's been in place in China, that's been in place in Canada, you know, with Canada is just the world's dominator, I believe, when it comes to food products and hemp products and, you know, certain products that come out of Canada. And then you've got the textiles, you know, coming out of China. I mean, that infrastructure has just been refined and in place for decades. So for, for the U.S. to all of a sudden come out and say hemp as an agricultural commodity and it can be used for all of these different industrial uses, unfortunately for our businesses, we are way behind in terms of innovation. Um, so I think that's very daunting for our clients to all of a sudden jump into hempcrete, for example, or jump into, you know, some sort of a fibrous plant for soil remediation and engage in those studies that still need to be done, that so deserve to be done and could literally heal the world. But, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. But I do feel that there is going to be a resurgence. Um, when I look at the way the money is flowing, I feel as though people were soured on hemp. You know, there was a big bubble on hemp and it was very mainly driven by cannabinoid hemp, um, you know, and then just a lot of uncertainty at the FDA level. Um, and then just a, not a lot of certainty with, you know, the 2018 Farm Bill was outstanding in providing, you know, legality, um, but still just so many questions, so much tension, you know, living in between the 2014, 2016, 2018 Farm Bills, you know, just so much gray space that it was very intimidating. So I do feel like it sort of grew and then shrunk and now it's growing again. Um, but no, you are right. The vast majority of our clients are focused on cannabinoid hemp and hemp-derived terpenes, um, you know, but I, I would love to see more industrial use. 
And as well they should be. They, were, they are smart in terms of where is the infrastructure for me to make a viable business model using or, or incorporating hemp into my existing manufacturing regimes. And I think you're starting to see more interest because that, that infrastructure certainly is growing. Fiber is really where I think the trillion dollar industries are absolutely, as you know, um, with human and animal nutrition. Now, from the human side, FDA, of course, has already deemed hulled hemp seeds, hemp protein derived from those seeds and cold pressed oil or hemp seed oil as grass generally recognized as safe. We do not have that luxury for animal feed, which would absolutely transform agriculture and certainly would uh, transform our farming industry and would be great for those of us who are partial owners in grain processing facilities. It's just incredible what the same process here in our developed country uh, that a food goes through in order for it to be deemed safe. It's incredible what a food for animal, for ag feed goes through outside of companion animals, meaning sort of horses, cats and dogs, although AFCO and the FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine, both of them, what's weird is that AFCO is like a private trade association. So I'll never understand this this sort of uh, relationship that this private trade association works with FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine to basically control what is approved for ag feed. It has to go per ingredient, per species, and even per subspecies. So, so far there's been one application written, it's for ag feed, for a seed cake for the laying hen, somewhere around $250,000, so on and so forth. Very frustrating. But Point being, your clients are saying, hey, the infrastructure isn't here yet, so I'm going to go with the infrastructure that is available if I want to engage uh, in these industries. Now, for New York, there's something very interesting that has happened, an opportunity that has opened up for hemp farmers, and that is the conditional cultivation and conditional processor license for existing, and there's all kinds of boundaries in terms of eligibility, but, but for existing licensed hemp farmers. Can you talk to the listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so very clear distinction. It is for the existing licensed hemp farmers that have authorization to engage in the production and farming or the farming and production, farming and manufacturing of and processing of hemp for cannabinoids not industrial use. This is specific authority for hemp for cannabinoids. And those farmers must have grown and processed hemp for two out of the last four years. Need a little bit of clarity around that because the licenses are for a two-year term. So if you got a two-year license and you grew hemp last year and you're going to grow it this year, would that count? Still needs to be determined in regulation. Um, if somebody is just breeding for seed and not really harvesting, does that count as a harvest? Are they no longer disqualified? They could be stewards of the entire hemp program and seeding all of the different entities, all of the farmers, and they would have nothing to grow and harvest if not for the breeders. But if the breeders aren't harvesting, are they going to be disqualified you know, from being able to participate in this program? Program. You know, so a lot of questions to understand what does it mean to have grown and harvested hemp for two out of the last four years. I know the state is going to be looking for documentation. That documentation is only specific to how much was grown, not how much was, pro uh, was harvested. Um, so we definitely have to take a very close look at how they're going to define that. Um, but the eligibility criteria is, is clear. You have to have the authorization for growing cannabinoid hemp or processing cannabinoid hemp and engaging in that research. It had to have been part of your original application and then authorized um, under the auspices of a research partnership agreement. Um, it is very exciting. Um, there are some limitations. If you're, um, you can only grow outdoor or in a greenhouse. Um, if you're going to grow outdoor, you're limited to one acre. 
if you're going to grow in a greenhouse, um, you're limited to 25,000 square feet. Um, that said, um, you're only allowed 20 artificial lights in a greenhouse. Um, so speaking to some of the lighting companies, they say that was a little bit arbitrary. Not a lot of discussion must have gone into that point. It probably should have been based upon wattage. So we're probably going to need to take a second look at that and decide whether it really makes sense, um, You know, whether it should be based on wattage. Notably, the legislation does say unless you get additional approval. So it does look like hemp farmers can go out there and say, you know, we want to have more lights or more wattage or whatever that might look like. Um, but the capacity limits are clear. Um, if you are going to do both outdoor and greenhouse, then your max is 30,000 square feet, and the max of the greenhouse portion is 20,000 square feet. Notably, this is flowering canopy. Um, the state has not yet defined what flowering canopy means. So does this mean we can have unlimited nursery? Maybe. Maybe we can engage in some really interesting phyto hunting, uh, pheno hunting. Maybe we can engage in some really, you know, exciting breeding activities. Um, but there's definitely a lot to explore um, outside the footprint of what could be considered a flowering canopy. Um, we have heard from a lot of our hemp farmers their concern it's a little bit late for a growing outdoor season this year already. I know it's the beginning of March, but it's already arguably a little bit late. Um, you know, and not a lot of farmers are you know, arguably they do have some experience working in cannabinoid hemp, but whether they can grow adult use cannabis is another open question. Um, so a lot of people are concerned that there's going to be a lot of really um, subpar cannabis grown this year as the result of this conditional authorization. But nonetheless, it is a pathway. It is a jump start. Um, you know, other concerns are that it could widen the equity gap. You know, New York does have a very progressive and ambitious goal of awarding 50% of all licenses to social equity applicants. I'm not sure how many of the existing hemp farmers and processors qualify as social equity, social and economic equity. Um, the Anyone who qualifies for a conditional license is going to have to institute a mentorship program um, where they're going to essentially incubate candidates who would otherwise meet the social and equity, social and economic equity criteria. Um, we know that there's going to be a huge environmental sustainability component to this. They're going to have to submit a very robust environmental sustainability plan. Um, but this is a go. This happened, you know, two weeks ago. The people who wrote the bill gave it a 50-50 shot. And then within one week, it made it through committee, through the legislature, and then signed by the governor. Um, so this is a surprise to a lot of stakeholders. Um, but we're working with it. We're going to roll with it. And we're excited to see how the regulations shake out. It's so fascinating because there is just so much support for building all forms of cannabis industry in New York. And that's why we're seeing these things pass through so quickly and be signed. And, and you know, there's just there is a like a desire, I think. Regulators and the lawmakers just so much want the adult use cannabis business to start going, to start moving ahead. And they're afraid that with new licenses, with inexperienced cannabis farmers, it's going to take a while. So to basically jumpstart the adult use cannabis businesses there, they're saying, hey, we're going to allow these conditional cannabis cultivation licenses and processing licenses to move forward with the only experienced people above board, I guess we would say in, in the non-traditional market that have experience here. And those would be our cannabinoid hemp licensed auth or authorized farmers and processors. It's to jumpstart the program. Is that correct? It is. Yep. It's to jumpstart the program. The state really wants the money. I mean, New York has been through a lot with the pandemic. The state is eager to see this happen. Um, you know, I, it, again, the social equity component is interesting um, because a lot of the bill and legalization is supposed to be rooted in social equity. So that is an interesting, you know, kicker um, to see how that's going to shake out and whether the state is going to remain committed to those goals. I know very recently the head of the social equity program in New York recently stepped down. Um, so I believe that there is a job available there. Um, you know, so we'll 
see how that shakes out, but this is a jump start to the program. It does afford a wonderful opportunity uh, to our, our cannabinoid hemp farmers and processors, you know, some of whom, you know, haven't done so well over the past couple of years. There was definitely a CBD boom, um, you know, and a lot of them got very excited and then hopes, you know, shattered and crashed, um, you know, so they're very much looking forward to recoup some of those losses um, when the projections got a little bit out of control two or three years ago. Indeed. And then just one last piece mm -hmm. on that particular bill, S8084A, is one of the other requirements. God, you just amazing whiz uh, giving us all of those all of those guardrails from that bill. Um, the one thing is that they are requiring licensees to enter into and maintain a labor peace agreement with a bona fide labor organization. And can you uh, explain to the listeners what that means? Absolutely. Um, so this is an increasing requirement. New York was the first to require this, and it's a medical cannabis program, and we're starting to see it across the board um, in a lot of new jurisdictions in medical and adult use cannabis. Um, but a labor peace agreement is an agreement between the employer and a labor union that ostensibly could represent the workers that are servicing that particular facility. Um, and it's an agreement that basically protects against labor disruptions as a result of conflicts between the workers and management. And it provides a mechanism by which they can resolve conflicts and a mechanism by which those workers can unionize. So um, it, it sets forth a procedure by which they can vote, by which they can learn about the union, so they can you know, learn what benefits the union can offer. Um, it sets some parameters on when the union can solicit, um, when the union can't solicit. Um, you know, there's usually non-disparagement is a very big provision of this where, you know, the management should be talking negatively about the union and vice versa. Um, you know, no intimidation. We certainly don't want to be intimidating our workers and, you know, preventing them from unionizing and having the benefit of an organized workforce. Um, you know, unionized workforces tend towards greater compliance and safety and training and all of that is critical to the success of any cannabis operation, any hemp operation. Um, you know, so the labor peace agreement, New York is very committed to it. You know, the, the people at the helm of our program have roots in, in labor relations. Um, and I expect this to be an ongoing requirement. Um, in New Jersey, you're required to enter into collective bargaining agreements. In New York, we're going to be seeing that as well um, in all likelihood. So the labor piece is huge, um, you know, but it does provide workplace stability, which can only be a good thing. Absolutely. No, and I, as a senior paralegal, worked in strictly in labor and employment practice groups for somewhere around six years, starting out at Littler Mendelssohn, which is a, a national and I think international firm now that specializes solely and exclusively in labor and employment. So it, it fascinates me to really see this, this focus um, that New York has and that they are moving this focus in through their cannabis and hemp programs. It's yeah. really fascinating to me. Now, are you are you familiar with the specific cannabis union? It's called Seed, C E E D. Have you heard of this? No, more UFCW was the one that first was the first union to sort of take on cannabis. So that's the that's the union that I am familiar with, the existing UFCW and because that started here uh, Colorado and Washington were of course yeah. the first ones to legalize but no tell me about this and did you say SEED I, I think it's CEED I'm actually looking for it but it's like cannabis extractors and engineers it's very heavily focused on the production and extraction aspect of cannabis um, I'll have to look into it but it's definitely called seed I believe it's with a C um, and it is very specific to cannabis and I know they're all over New Jersey um, you know lots of applications in New Jersey hundreds of applications in New Jersey um, and a lot of those workers are being represented by this particular union. Um, you know, a lot of our workers are represented by Teamsters, of course, the retail union 
um, you know, lots of different unions that are all vying for this business, right? They're, they want these contracts. These are big contracts for their workers. Um, but the seed union is interesting, you know, and to me that signifies that there's an organized workforce that is not only committed to the safety and training of its workers, but within the cannabis industry specifically, thus really honing in on our craft, you know, really pushing its workers, you know, through this specific industry, you know, and maybe it will drive value for those workers, um, you know, and, and hopefully give them, you know, a little bit of a competitive edge um, when ultimately applying for workplace opportunities. Absolutely fascinating. And then, and getting back to sort of the glut, the crash, we've talked about it a few times now, the need for infrastructure. So, there was such money fever, you know, at the beginning of when we started with the 2014 Farm Bill, which, of course, was for agricultural pilot programs. Um, and there was so much hullabaloo around the hundreds and millions and billions of dollars that everyone could make on CBD, that farmers could make. And farmers, by and large, these are these are people of strong integrity, our American farmers and our American family farms. And they are, by and large, people who operate on handshakes and trust and integrity. And so when unscrupulous seed sellers would come along and say, hey, uh, you can make $100,000 an acre versus the $80 an acre you were making on hay, um, and I've got these magic beans um, these magic seeds, and you're going to be able to make all this money there. None of them are going to be past 0.3% THC. There's going to be 18 18% CBD. They're all going to be feminized. Oh, the germination rate is 90, all of those things. Now let's pretend even that those magic seeds existed because those magic seeds do, they're hard to come by. They're a, a wonderful breeder is maintaining those in a breeder program, but the, there are certainly some wonderful, stable, reliable genetics that do exist. Again, hard to come by. So let's pretend that even if that is true, a, a farmer gets his hands or her hands on those genetics or their hands, as I should say, on those genetics. Um, the making the $100,000 an acre is still not going to be your end result. As we learned the hard way in the United States, it takes basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, a little bit of hemp to make a whole lot of hemp extract. Um, and so we overproduced, we massively overproduced. Farmers lost their shirts. Um, it was so disappointing and sad for everybody. And what we really want, and for those of us who had been working in hemp for 30 years, bear in mind, as you well know, uh, Lauren, it was oil, seed, and fiber. And it was only around 2012-ish that this whole idea of hemp-derived CBD or hemp extract, hemp-derived cannabinoids, sort of hit us all uh, like a ton of bricks. Oh, and it was derived from stalks and stems, right? It was the very first CBD. Let's try to get it from stalks and stems because hemp wasn't even legal yet. So, but the stalks and stems were. So. Unbelievable stuff. Yes. So, so we had this massive overproduction, hundreds of thousands of acres, um, probably at least a hundred thousand, if not more of these acres, you know, rotted in the field, particularly in 2020. Um, and in 2019, it was very disappointing. So, but we are starting to see again, fiber infrastructure is coming on board. Now that is very location specific. Hemp is a very heavy crop, as you know, so we are not, it doesn't, 
economically viable to ship this heavy crop hundreds of miles so that it can be processed and then ship some more to go to the manufacturer. That's what we're building now. Ultimately, we want to see these infrastructure and these processing facilities within, you know, 50 to 100 square miles of that biomass feedstock. And I imagine that it will get pretty regional, that it will be, gee, there's a lot of grain manufacturing and processing in this region. And therefore, they're growing a lot of hemp for grain. There's a lot of fiber manufacturing and infrastructure in this region. Therefore, they're growing a lot for fiber. And of course, we've got dual and tri crops. We're catching up not only in the infrastructure, as you so articulately mentioned, that beautiful food infrastructure, grain processing in Canada, fiber and textile manufacturing in China. We're, we're catching up. And as we do, our farmers will start to grow more of those types of crops. And then we'll start to be able to see, and there are incredible seed variety trials going on all over the country right now. I mean, it's just amazing to see academia with regulators, with for-profits, with nonprofits, everyone working together, working to deliver on this promise with these seed varieties. But by dual and, and tri-crop, of course, what I mean is you're growing for grain, but you're also able to use some of that fiber. Now, it's not going to, you're not really, and, and there may be a time and a climate where we come up with a, a breed of, of hemp where it's this incredibly ultimate nutritional profile of the grain. And it happens to be very high grade fiber for fine textiles. That is basically mutually exclusive just due to the maturity rate of fiber in hemp versus the grain in hemp. And then of course, versus the cannabinoids. But that's what we mean by dual um, and tri-crop. So there was the overproduction causing that problem. And then there is this lack of federal regulation contributing to a chilling effect in the advancement of the hemp extract and hemp derived cannabinoids world. And could you explain to the listeners what I mean about this federal regulation conundrum that we are in? Sure. Well, the federal government or the FDA has always taken the position that you cannot, or I shouldn't say always taken the position, has taken the position that you cannot add CBD to a food or beverage and nor can CBD constitute a dietary supplement. Um, and they take this position because according to the FDA, CBD was under, you know, substantial, undergoing substantial clinical trials at the time that GW Pharmaceuticals was developing the drug Epidiolex. And so therefore CBD is a drug and therefore it cannot be a dietary supplement or um, nor should it be added to food and beverage. Um, it needs to be produced like a drug and distributed like a drug and, um, you know, it should not be left to ordinary private companies, um, you know, to manufacture these products. Um, so in the absence of safety regulations and in the absence of, you know, a clear regulatory pathway, investors got very nervous. Um, you know, notwithstanding that some states like New York, like Colorado, were creating regulatory pathways for the production of these products and for the retail sales of these products. And, you know, regulating this to the extent where we have licenses and, you know, strict requirements and limitations on licensing and, you know, everything that would be required in order to properly produce and sell these products. So notwithstanding all of this advancement at the state level, the FDA was still pulling back and saying, you can't add CBD to food. You can't sell CBD as a dietary supplement. There were lawsuits going on, you know, suing uh, the federal government, um, you know, on multiple occasions, you know, saying that uh, the positions taken, you know, are inconsistent with the letter and the spirit of the 2014 Farm Bill, the 2016 Farm Bill, the 2018 Farm Bill. Um, you know, so definitely lawsuits con convoluting the matter. Um, and when you have that sort of regulatory instability, 
investors are scared. You know, investors don't want to put up a lot of money. Yes, the potential is huge. You know, I remember speaking at, at BevNet, which is a, a big bev- beverage conference, you know, back in 2016, 2017, and saying, you know, I, I predict that in the same way that we see food and beverage products fortified with calcium and vitamin D, we can just as easily see that with cannabinoids, especially CBD, you know, and I think people got very, very excited about that prospect. But because the FDA was saying no, um, and then of course the DEA has to chime in with its inconsistent interpretations of the farm bill and whether extracts are legal or not legal um, and, and taking an inconsistent position on that front as well. We've got multiple arms of the federal government saying you can't do it. And then we've got various state agencies saying you can do it. Um, and that is just a soup for, for disaster when it comes to investment. Um, and so without those investment dollars, um, you know, to create these brands and these products and these, you know, this go to market strategy, um, you know, there was just a huge gap in sales and this product is still sitting there. I mean, we still have biomass from two, three years ago. Um, you know, we have extract just two, three years old, just sitting there. I would love to move it if anyone knows where to move it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, what is, what is also interesting is that that glut that left over is that they're in what is where Delta eight was born. What are we going to do with all of these cannabinoids? We're going to synthetically convert them to potentially intoxicating cannabinoids. One- the result of prohibition. You know, these are not real cannabinoids. These are Frankenstein cannabinoids, and it is a direct result of prohibition. And if cannabis and hemp were liberalized in the way that they should, um, you know, we would not be seeing these, you know, potentially harmful products being created, you know, that aren't properly regulated and that probably should be, you know, regulated much more like medical or adult use cannabis than than hemp. Um, But definitely some very concerning um, products have been produced, um, you know, some really interesting conversion techniques used to convert CBD into Delta-8, Delta-10, you know, THCO, is that something that I'm seeing now? Um, you know, some really unique products, um, you know, that I think people are very worried about because there's just no production standards, no safety warnings, you know, not a lot of information as to how these compounds are going to interact with your system. Um, you know, probably best just to keep it natural um, and work with those compounds that are naturally occurring in the plant. <laughs> I mean, in the bathtub gin uh, processes to even create, to synthetically convert them, it's very, very concerning. Now, there are, of course, two federal bills out there, H.R. 841 and S-1698, that direct the FDA to create these regulatory frameworks. There are slight differences in those bills. H.R. 841 is directing the FDA to create a regulatory pathway for all hemp-derived cannabinoids to be marketed as dietary supplements, inclusive of new dietary ingredient notification and the self-grass process. Now, whereas S1698 is, is, is asking the FDA to direct the regulation of CBD, for dietary supplements and food and beverage. And I, and the thinking there, and, and it's a wonderful bill. It's a, it's a big ask. Um, why is there one that's just asking for dietary supplements? Why is there one that's asking for food and dietary supplements? Of course, the, the rub there is that we're pretty confident, um, that the FDA is going to feel more comfortable uh, with CBD as a dietary supplement to the extent they can be bullied at all to move forward and doing their job. As you know, we're in year three now in an open rulemaking period, trying to get them to regulate this. Um, But ultimately, we want them to be able to to move forward and, and create these regulatory pathways. Their concern is that food 
doesn't have a serving size necessarily a limit, like a daily allowance or a daily serving. And so if you had 10 milligrams of CBD, let's say in each Oreo, and you wanted to eat the entire package of Oreo, that nutrition facts label and the instructions on your Oreo packed, you know, there, there aren't, we don't require directions for food unless you need directions on how to sort of safely store or cook it, prepare it. Whereas with dietary supplements, there is, you know, what are the directions here? The directions are take this much per day or as recommended by your physician. And there's a limit on that. So though that's the difference between those two bills, that and the fact that HR 841 is, is not just limited to CBD because we can't go through this, this IND preclusion that you discussed, the investigational new drug preclusion, which gives rise to the FDA saying this is why. And believe me, as you well know, they weren't just saying you can't, they aren't just saying you can't market these products as food additives and um, or as dietary supplements. They're literally saying it is a violation of federal law if you add these uh, CBD to food. So we can't go through this molecule by molecule, which is why AR, HR 841 is saying all of the molecules, all hemp-derived cannabinoids, those we've discovered, those we have not discovered, so on and so forth. Um, and that once those one of those bills will pass uh, that, and each of them does give a framework for when this is to be enacted, the time period for them to be able to create these regulations. The issue is that the FDA puts forth these TAs, these technical analysis of these bills. And there was a similar bill to HR 841 prior that is, is dead in committee, another house bill. And their technical, um, the TA that they wrote for the prior bill and the current HR 841 is just, they want to completely rewrite. They want to use this little narrow piece of the big gigantic dietary supplement world, which is hemp extract and hemp derived cannabinoids. To us, they're everything, but to the dietary supplement world, they're a small piece of dietary supplements. And the FDA wants to use these bills to basically create their, live their desire of rewriting the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, DSHE, we call that for short, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act created a legal dietary supplement industry and the FDA does not like the dietary supplement industry that was created by DSHE and it's really been, for lack of a better word, sort of the the ugly stepchild of the FDA. And now we're piling on by adding cannabis to it. And they seem to want to completely rewrite um, Deshay as a result. So I, I think it's going to be very interesting um, what's going to happen here. But as you know, we've also seen multiple state departments of ag, multiple federal lawmakers, all writing signed group letters, basically begging, demanding the FDA to move forward and regulate this, this, uh, these safe substances, provide this regulatory framework. It's completely irresponsible for them not to. Any predictions? I'm optimistic. I want to put it out there. And I want to say that both the supplement and the food pathways will, 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 um, will pass. Um, I'm also, you know, cautiously, um, you know, uh, concerned that in all likelihood it's not going to. Um, but no, I agree with you. You know, these inconsistencies are untenable. You know, it's impossible to operate in this way. You know, there's mass. But, but what has happened is 
the FDA has said you can't add CBD to a food, nor can it be marketed as a dietary supplement. But they were very specific with CBD as a singular molecule. So instead, we have hosts of products that have hemp extract with naturally occurring CBD. And is that really different? Yes, it is different. Um, you know, is, can the FDA possibly regulate hemp extract in the same way that it regulates an isolate? Probably not due to the vastly different numbers and potential combinations of cannabinoids and terpenoids and other, you know, um, molecules that are naturally occurring in the hemp plant. Um, so obviously much harder to regulate a hemp extract than it would be to, to regulate a single molecule, which is why they picked on CBD. Um, but, you know, that has just created this massive loophole and gray area to exploit. Um, you know, so it would be much more responsible for the FDA to pass this regulation, you know, or to approve this regulation and or for this regulation to be passed and then create this pathway for the FDA. Um, because that would create the stability, you know, that the market very much needs. And, you know, if the FDA is so concerned on product safety and quality assurance, it's not going to achieve that with the targeting CBD in the way that it has. It will achieve that by taking stock of the multi-billion dollar demand that has been created, the multi-billion dollars of sales transactions that are already occurring, you know, and figure out a, the best way to wrap its arms around that and provide a legal pathway. Otherwise, again, we're operating in gray space. It's not stable for investors. It's not stable for businesses, and it's not healthy for consumers. And often, when you know, in our lobbying calls, and and the the reach is is great. You know, we hear even from FDA counsel. Well, you know, we need we would need more money to enforce. Oh, well, then by all means, use that as an excuse to not enforce now, and just let all of us just run rampant. And and then all of the states that are just pulling their hair out. New York really said, we we hope that these other states will use us as the barometer so that we can actually create a safe industry here in the United States. They want to be the template. It'll be interesting to see if California, which of course passed AB 45, if they're going to take notes from New York, because I know there's a great relationship, New York and California, New York and Florida. There's a couple of states that New York has these great relationships with. I really hope um, that they that they go ahead and take those notes. Uh, another prediction that I have is, and I don't know if this will be for all molecules, but all cannabinoids, but I think that it, it probably will be for CBD is I think once there finally is a regulatory framework in place, most likely I, isolate, which will be defined. And oh my goodness, the different definitions of cannabinoid isolates that exist in different states, but will be defined and and then will be relegated just to pharmaceuticals or drugs. I, I do think that the FDA is most likely going to take CBD isolate away. I can see that it's easy. They can do it. I can see them doing it. Um, it's, it's practical, um, you know, and it's discreet. Um, you know, and, and they like that sort of stability. So I could see that happening too. Yes, yes. And of course, and and as you know, the more recent bill, <laughs> the Hemp Advancement Act has been filed. That's more of a, a technical amendment to the 2023 Farm Bill. It's coming out as a standalone bill. <clears throat> um, Representative Pingree from uh, my own home state of Maine has prime sponsored that. And that is asking to increase the level of THC in the field, specifically in the field to 1%, keeping finished products to zero to 0.3%, but 0.3% total THCs, not 0.3% of just specifically Delta 9. We've learned some lessons here with these other isomers. Um, and so, and there's some other great other bells and whistles and improvements around that bill. Um, the bill is being met with uh, different amounts of receptivity. We're a strong supporter of it. I'm a strong supporter of the Hemp Advancement Act, and I hope that it moves forward. 
As we come to a close, Lauren, I really just want folks to understand the level of expertise and the level of specialization in these different practice groups that they get when they go to Hiller PC. Because there are all kinds of cannabis practices that have sort of popped up. You can put that shingle on your shack. Um, we have no idea the level of experience with many of these new attorneys who are coming in. In the, Specifically in the cannabis and hemp space, you have been operating for a, several years now, certainly since the beginning of, of hemp in New York, and you advise clients in multiple states, Colorado, Washington, which are the first to legalize. But in addition to that, you have a great strong corporate practice um, and other areas. And I, I'd like for you to just uh, follow up here by other areas of specialization and subject matters that your cannabis clients need Cannabis clients need real estate lawyers. Cannabis clients need labor and employment lawyers. But at Hiller PC, yeah, what are the different specializations and areas and subject matter help that they can receive at Hiller PC? Sure. So no question, you know, engaging in the cannabis industry is an interdisciplinary practice. Um, you know, it, there's cannabis law, the regulations itself. So there's regulatory compliance. And when you're in the cannabis business, you're in the business of regulatory compliance. And if you don't love regulatory compliance, then it's not the right thing for you. Um, but what's really fascinating about the cannabis industry is how it drew out, you know, cannabis and hemp, it really drew out entrepreneurs that aren't really entrepreneurs. They just had dollar signs in their eyes and they saw an interesting opportunity, but they actually know very, very little about running a business. Um, there is a business behind the business of cannabis and hemp. It isn't all just dollar signs and a green rush. Um, these are businesses that have to have budgets, that have to, you know, have corporate hygiene. Um, you know, so we do a lot of work with startups, a lot of handholding. You know, startup law in general, you wear a lot of hats. You know, it's a lot of counseling and it's a lot of advisement. It's a lot of setting clients out on a proper trajectory. Um, you know, and that is is truly invaluable um, because if you're not on the right trajectory, the course correction can really be, you know, infinitely more expensive. So if regulatory compliance and corporate hygiene aren't part of your DNA from the beginning, you're really setting yourself up for, you know, very, very difficult time down the road, whether it be when you're trying to scale or attract investment dollars or get your license or get renewed. Renewal can sometimes be just as onerous as getting a license in the first instance. Um, you know, so lots of different practice areas that feed into that. So all kinds of startup law, corporate formation, all the corporate um, transactions, M&A transactions, financing. Of course, if you're going to, you know, the, the cannabis license, hemp licenses are location specific. So there is definitely a land component to that. Sometimes you need a variance to engage in the, the use itself. Sometimes you might have an as of right use. Sometimes there's a land purchase. Sometimes there's a lease. Sometimes you have to get a little creative with that lease. Um, because it can be very expensive. We know that landlords love to gouge cannabis companies because everyone thinks that cannabis companies are made of money when really it's not as profitable as everyone thinks it, it will be. You know, tons of revenue, no question. Cannabis businesses generate a lot of revenue, but that does not translate into profits. Um, you know, I think one of the rudest awakenings that cannabis businesses have is they might not have the money to have a cannabis business. They really have to be prepared to withstand and operate at a loss for several years. These programs take some time to develop. Um, you know, so there's definitely a lot of financing transactions, a lot of very creative ways to attract financing, loans, convertible notes, safes, you know, standard, you know, equity investments. Um, a ton of intellectual property protection. You know, I'm actually, in addition to wearing a legal hat, I serve as a director of Breeders Best, uh, which is a record label style producer of unique cannabis genetics and hemp genetics. Um, you know, so very much focused in, um, in in cannabis and hemp genetics. And I work with Plant and Planet law firm, Dale Hunt at the helm of that. He's also at the helm of Breeders Best. Um, so really exciting, you know, some plant protection, plant patents, utility patents where appropriate, responsibly, of course. Um, 
a lot of work in trademark. You know, trademark law is very interesting because none of these products, cannabis products, are used in interstate commerce. Hemp products are used in interstate commerce, but the USPTO has said they're following the FDA on this and they're not really granting trademarks for the food and beverage products, although we're starting to see a little bit more movement with the topical products. For cannabinoids, I just... For cannabinoids, yes, yes. Um, Absolutely. Nope, 100% right. So, you know, we're definitely, you know, there's a lot of work um, being done at the IP level, whether it be patents, whether it be trademarks and copyright artwork, you know, branding, all of that is very exciting. Um, You know, so a lot of team building for sure. Independent contractors, you know, advisors, you know, all manner of professional service providers, accountants, you know, onboarding your team. I mean, you can't do this alone. I shouldn't say you can't do it alone. I actually know, you know, an operator in Alaska who literally does it alone and fills his own machine and flies his own seaplane to get his supply and to do his drop-offs. And he literally is a one-man show. So I don't want to say you can't do it alone. You can do it alone if you're very special and talented. But usually it does take a little bit of a village to operate these facilities, Um, you know, and, and assembling that team definitely takes some work. You know, cannabis businesses have to follow the same laws that everybody else does, wage and hourly laws, anti-discrimination, all of the things, Um, you know, and people think that because we're operating an open violation of federal law that the regular laws don't apply to us, but they all, in fact, still apply to us. To the hemp world where the... No, do the code of federal regulations exist for dietary supplements? Yes, the code of federal regulations exists for food. And, and you should follow that code because it's the law if you're engaging in that industry. Yeah, I mean, the only, law, the only law we're not following, right, is the Controlled Substances Act. And that's not for hemp. Hemp is compliant because of the, you know, exemption or exception that the Farm Bill creates for hemp. Um, but nonetheless, um, all of the regular laws that apply to any startup business apply to you as a cannabis or hemp business. Um, and so we do try to provide a very robust full suite of legal services to our clients. You sure do. And I think that is really the large point is that, you know, and there are other attorneys who endeavor, they'll say, oh, gee, I'll write your LLC operating agreement. Have you ever written an LLC operating agreement before? No, but now that I'm a cannabis lawyer and I've started my cannabis practice, I'm going to write LL operating And no, I would like to go to an experienced corporate attorney who knows all about the, you know, it's just basic stuff, but buyer beware, consumer beware. And, and one thing that you didn't mention that I just think is so amazing that Hiller PC does is right on down to the SOPs. You have experienced technical writers who have been uh, uh, in this space in multiple states from that perspective, it's just incredible the the exemplary legal services that you get in such a wide spectrum of specialized subject matters when you go to Hiller PC. And I have to say, I can't believe I just learned for the first time, Ms. Lauren, that you are director at Breeders Best. Because of course we've had Dr. Ethan Rousseau uh, on the show and I just didn't realize that is so fantastic to learn the many talents of Lauren Rudick. What an incredible woman, woman you are. Oh, thank you. It's, you know, that work is, is, is exceptionally exciting. I, you know, I represent Dr. Ethan Russo. I represent his company, Credo Science. I do a ton of work with him and, you know, Dale Hunt is special counsel to our firm. Um, but, you know, bringing on the technical writers, bringing on these subject matter experts and consultants and these specialists is critical for us to understand the business needs of our clients. I mean, there's so much gap between the legal and the business. And if we're going to be applying for competitive licenses and writing business plans and workforce development plans and environmental sustainability plans and all of the regulatory compliance, we need to really understand the business. And sometimes you don't get that from the client. So we brought in, you know, specialists in-house to help translate, um, you know, and, and be that liaison. And so that's what really enables us to provide a very 
very unique perspective to our clients and a, a different type of value um, you know, that we bring to their business. So lucky to have you in New York and every state because uh, goodness knows you serve clients in all of them. Lauren, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. I can't wait to have you again uh, back on Hemp Barons, and I will be seeing you on April 20th in Manhattan. Lauren Rudick, and I can't wait. It can't come soon enough. Thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. Oh, it is an honor, Joy. What a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for me. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.